Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Whenever I go into someone's house or, or just like a room, one of the first things that my brain does is, um, is say to, I say to myself, <laughs> I wonder how many modules can fit in here. <laughs> it's pretty dorky. Um, it's really, it's really become a problem, actually. Yeah, I mean, do you ever, like, dream in, uh, patch cables? Have, is, is that a thing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it's a good dream, then I'm skateboarding while I'm patching. Like, I'm usually, like, on some excursion, and then I'm, like, instead of being like, oh, I have to write this down, I'm, like, patching it. <laughs> We're getting all out there now. Do you skateboard in real life? <laughs> No. I mean, I've tried, and I just, like, look like a grandma. I mean, grandmas can make a skateboard, actually. Um, I look awkward. Could you introduce yourself? Sure. Hello, my name is Caitlin Aurelia Smith, and I'm a composer and a synthesis. You grew up in a pretty magical place. Yeah. On Orcas Island. I love it there. (laughs) Northwest Islands. Yes. It's very lush. I mean, it's green year-round. And lots of moss. There's no poison oak. No natural predators. And lots of space. I started on piano and studied classical guitar and, um, and worked with orchestral instruments and pursued what I called at the time cinematic folk. I don't know why I called it that. <laughs> but um, one summer when I went back to Orcas Island, um, I was helping my neighbor set up his studio, and we were talking about composers who inspire us and I mentioned Terry Riley he got very excited and showed me a room full of Buchla synthesizers which at the time I had no idea what a Buchla synthesizer was the instrument is made up of independent electronic units packed together into a compact console there are oscillators which produce the sound filters, amplifiers and envelope generators which shape He was kind enough to let me borrow one for about a year and a half. You don't have to be an electronics expert. All you need is a good musical ear. And I took it to my cabin and just slowly it just unfolded into this amazing world where I felt like I had an orchestra at my hands. I basically left the guitar and haven't touched a guitar since. This is Meet the Composer. Hey, everybody. This is Nadia Sirota. So this show is about composers. It, you know, says so on the tin. Meet the composer. But what exactly is a composer? Well, until like 70 years ago or something, the answer to that question was pretty simple. A composer is someone who thinks up music, dreams it up in their head, and then sort of sorts out a way to transcribe it onto paper, which is then given to a performer to realize. And this weird composer-performer audience vector is one that we've actually spent a lot of time exploring on this show already. Okay, but something different showed up about 70 years ago. All of a sudden, as a species even, we started to plug stuff into walls and to power things with electricity. And this has had a massive impact on art and on composers. Now electrons are able to jump. That's the form of electricity. So the system of composition, of writing things down for people to play, 
suddenly we stop taking that for granted. And that's made the whole idea of what a composer is and what she does to produce music look radically different from how it used to look. And weirdly, we've adopted a whole bunch of clumsy terminology surrounding this practice. We're apt to call a composer who works with technology, who composes without pen and paper inside the box of a computer, a producer. A producer. Is that fair? Is it apt? Producer is a weird ass word. It can mean everything from the lady who puts up the money for a film to the guy who cuts together this very radio show. And actually in this case it's made even more complicated by the fact that that dude in the case of this show actually is a composer also or maybe we should call him a producer. No. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> That's our producer Alex Overington. <laughs> That's me. Hi guys. Sorry. Okay, so today on the show this is what we're going to talk about. Composers who write without pen and paper. People working with electronics, with machines, not necessarily with performers at all. People we often call producers or electronic musicians. And so Alex is one of these people. Just by listening to the show, you've been immersed in a sound world that Alex created using these exact same tools. And you know, he's really good at it. So all of these tools, all of the computers and software and keyboards and knobs and whatever, they can all pretty much be traced back to two game-changing innovations. And we're going to talk about both of them over the course of this show and what they mean for how music is made. But the first one, it's what Caitlin was just talking about discovering. So let's go back to Alex's conversation with Caitlin Aurelia Smith about the synthesizer. Take it away, Alex. All right. So we had been talking about how Caitlin has gotten to this point where she, like, dreams in synthesizer. If it's a good dream, then I'm skateboarding. But she went through a lot of phases to get there. <laughs> a rap stage, I went through a hip-hop stage, I went through a country stage, <laughs> I went through, like, uh, rock anthems. And it was really just a playground. It was awful. <laughs> so she spent a lot of time in college just exploring everything she could find. And nothing really quite stuck until I found modular synthesis. But before that, I just went through every single genre, and I hope no one ever hears those recordings. <laughs> I had a weird insecurity mm -hmm. thing when I went to composer school. This this feeling that almost like a, who am I yeah. to like write this piece and then have like all these people rehearse it and try to perform it. And like, I, yeah. I don't know, it, it felt like this weird kind of, I'm not worthy of all this attention kind of thing. Yeah. That resonates to me as well, yeah. It's like turning to the computer somehow just feels so much safer and pleasant, and I feel like I can explore without yeah. <laughs> that kind of fear or pressure. Like, Do you feel a certain comfort when you're working with your own tools? Yeah, definitely. And that's kind of one of the main things that made me continue down that path was just feeling like I could really just spend endless amounts of time on, on the tiniest detail of each sound and get sounds that I wouldn't necessarily know how to notate. It used to bring a lot of stress to me in college because it would feel like I would lose control and I uh, and so if I didn't have access to like shaping every single sound I, it would just bring a lot of anxiety to me with electricity it's just very unstable and when I perform live I have to tune in the moment like probably 15 times <laughs> within 45 minutes so it's I mean it feels like you're like really dancing with this system. But then, how do you count for like mm -hmm. those like weird, cranky old machines? What do you mean? <laughs> with the imperfections and like having to tune. Like I didn't know we had. To, it's like most people. It's like you have to tune since. Um, yeah. Like uh, how are they? How are they so cranky? Yeah. Well, I love. Um, Morton Sabotnik has a quote where Don Buchla asked him. 
how long should I, should I make these machines stay in tune? And I guess Morton Sabotnik said to him, how long does a violin stay in tune? And so they made it, you know, as stable as a, a violin would be. But to answer your question, wait, actually, will you ask it again? <laughs> <laughs> There's a, the attraction to working with electronics is that it affords you extra control. Oh, but right, the, right. But these machines are sort of like maybe not the most precise. So. Well, but I, th- I mean, I think it's the same with, with humans, too. Hmm. That like, I mean, they're going to go out of, out of tune. And they're going to interpret, you know, what you write differently. And so having that ability to actually put your hand on it when you hear it and be like, no, it's actually like this. That's like the, the control that I, that I fell in love with. And I want you guys to fall in love with it too. So in order to get us there, we're enlisting the help of a bunch of people, and I want to introduce a few of them right off the bat. We're going to hear from Tyne Day Braxton. Okay. Hi, I'm Tyne Day Braxton. Caitlin, you know. Nice to meet you. And these two guys, Drew Daniel. I'm Drew Daniel. And Martin Schmidt. I'm Martin Schmidt. And they have a band called Matmus. So these cranky old machines that are kind of hard to wrangle, they come with a pretty steep learning curve. It's not that different from, like, becoming a drag queen, right? If you're going to be a drag queen, you need someone to be your drag mommy. And, like, teach you how to do your face and, like, how to do your eyes and how to do foundation and how to dust it. It's not easy, necessarily. And it's kind of the same with electronic music. You need your drag mommy to teach you how what a sequencer is. You need a drag mommy to teach you what, you know, a signal chain is and what game stages are. You know, my drag mommy is also my husband. (laughs) It's Martin. He taught me how to Yeah, I forgot the original question. Sorry. (laughs) So, in order to dive deep into Synthworld, we're going to need our own drag mommy. And remember that guy who decided Caitlin should need to tune her synth however many times during a show? I think he's our guy. So, I got in my car, hit the road to talk to Morton Sabotnik. Um, was you want to close that door and we won't get the um, my wife's um, opera she's writing right now. Oh, <laughs> and keep the dog out. Cool. And um, could you also introduce yourself? No, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or can you just say hi? I'm hi. I'm Mort Sabotnik. Morton Sabotnik. This guy opens the secret door. It's a really big topic. To this world of music no one had explored before. You're talking to the person who actually designed the first synthesizers. And I'm sitting in a folding chair in his basement. Uh, yeah, you're recording now? Okay, so I just I just finished my book that's my memoir. And uh, I quote Marshall McLuhan a lot in the beginnings of chapters. And one of, one of his wonderful quotes that I use is... Um, we walk into the future backwards, looking through a rear-view mirror. If you just take that and wind it around your head a few minutes. <laughs> we walk into the future backwards, looking through a rear-view mirror. This is, this is what I imagine was about to happen, right? So it's the 1960s. I was a good clarinetist. And Morton's living in the Bay Area. But I wasn't going to be the greatest clarinetist in the world. And he was also composing. And I wasn't ever going to be Beethoven. It wasn't going to change the world in any way. I was, and that's fine. I had no problem with that. But the way he would change the world was through this vision for how new technology could reshape the way we make music. I thought, well, I don't know anything about technology, but it seems to me that we ought to have a new concept for an instrument. And so, in order to come up with this instrument, this thing that would approach music in a fundamentally new way, he had to ask himself a pretty basic question. It was, you know, what is sound? Morton went deep. I was a demon. He read everything. Read about everything I could. and Even the, like, 
500-page training manual the Navy handed out to electrical engineers. I lived it and breathed it. He was doing his best to wrap his head around the science, but he realized he really needed an electronics wizard. The first thing I did was put an ad in the San Francisco Chronicle. Then in came Donald Buchlo. Former employee of NASA, brilliant engineer, and, by most accounts, a card-carrying wizard. Told him what I was looking for, and he said, oh, I can do that. So Buchlo went home and tinkered for a while. And the next day, he came back with a prototype. It had a plank and light and a battery with a wheel going around. I said, it It works. <laughs> In another field, music can now be produced entirely by electronics. No known instruments are involved. I realized that what was going to happen is that the commercial enterprises were going to take over and make things that people wanted. This is music with a strictly electronic beat. They were going to make old instruments with electronics. That's what people wanted. They are going to all want a black and white keyboard. But easy to play. So that picture you have in your mind of the synth guitar player in the 80s glam band, that is not what these guys had in mind. They wanted a totally new way of interacting with sound. So that old black and white piano keyboard was out of the picture. The one thing I knew for sure is that it could not have a black and white keyboard. Because if it did, we would be dragging the past into the future. You're not going to do something. It's, it's almost impossible to think of an entirely new thing. Well, they did. They made an entirely new thing. And it's called the modular synthesizer. So, what is it? A modular synthesizer primarily is a collection of modules whose functions are arguing with each other, depending on how you patch them together. So this is Ty and Dave Braxton. Check, check. He's a composer who works a lot with these synths. It's a bunch of tiny... uh, square modules in a in a case. For example, you could have one module is just it's just the power and then another module is an oscillator, oscillator which is like the noise making module and filters which is kind of like the mouth opening and closing. Different modulating another modules module that is an LFO. Do various things that could warp the sounds in different ways or can generate sequences in different ways. I mean there's so many modules. My modular synth is comprised of maybe about 20 different modules. It's endless. It's kind of where the fun is. You don't buy like a full modular synthesizer. You buy module by module and kind of like personalize and create your own. I'm already getting tongue-tied trying to <laughs> trying to like explain it. Because my very first thought when I saw it <laughs> was it looks like a control panel for a spaceship. <laughs> it's really exciting when there's a lot of buttons and knobs. We got touch plate input devices. Oh yeah. That is really fun because it feels like I'm tickling it and then it's making sound. People still call it a keyboard, but there were no keys. Basically, when you touch it, you're closing the circuit. You had Um, two or three different kinds of voltages you could get from a single key and make it do anything you want. You could move a sound across the room. It could change the timbre of it and, of course, the pitch. Silver Apples of the Moon was my first record, my first piece. On the back of the liner notes, I say, this is, this is the new chamber music. I didn't consider what the, this as a synthesizer. This was what I called an electronic music um, easel. You know, your easel and the palette and a paintbrush. It basically turns into a painting, and then that's where um, a lot of decisions of what I want to put next comes from is uh, is basically painting with sound, I guess. You kind of get instant results in sculpting. I guess it's kind of the Michelangelo approach. You take the clay and you are able to mold it kind of instantly and yeah. find ways to shape it. He would start with a block and just carve away until what wanted to be revealed was revealed. I feel like there's even a step removed with notated music where you're not able to totally get those results right off the bat. It wasn't like writing it down and and then waiting for someone to play it. Every day I was living this living thing like a painter. 
I no longer thought of myself as a musician or a composer. I was an ex-composer and an ex-musician. Um, process. What's the point of that? Unless you're completely blind, scared, in the dark, and don't know what's going on. That's process. <laughs> Repeat. Yeah, yeah. We're not recording yet, are we? <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. We're not recording yet, right? <laughs> <laughs> Ownership uh, is it, it, it definitely is important for me to have my own ideas and my own, you know, um, yeah, my own ideas reflected back to me from this from this instrument. Um, I want to be able to be in control of what's what it's doing or have an understanding of what it's doing. Be able to set these parameters and and, and set up a situation that I meant to set up just so I could say something with it, you know? Because otherwise, you're putting things together and you're kind of wowed by its sound, which is, you totally, like, when I first start working like this, of course you are, the sounds of it are really beautiful, really kind of, like, abstract and, 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 and strange and kind of otherworldly. But soon after that, you start to say, okay, those sounds are cool, but what do I... How can I? What, what am I saying with this? You know, and that was important to me. the The reason it's important to me is because I'm actually not looking for like a free for all kind of situation, and this is why it's important for me to be able to interface this way of working with notated music, um, something that is m maybe more concrete, more literal, and finding ways to have those things interface where you feel real purpose behind the electronic side of the composition as well as with the notated side and you kind of feel the relationship is intimate between those two ways of working you know like I, I, I really appreciate John Cage's philosophy and in a lot of ways he was uh, really important to just kind of liberate me from you know the academic constraints of what we what I you know going through school and like you know the rigidness of uh, academia and music school. But at the same time, musically speaking, I want to be more in control of what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, I want to be in absolute control of what I'm doing. There's something about the way gear is begging to be used sometimes, mm -hmm. which implies that you should see what happens when you use it to the max. Of course. You only could really know something once you, when you push it beyond its capabilities, and then you can kind of really understand what this thing actually is, you know? You, you can, um, you really intimately know a lot of these things when, um, yeah, you, you break them. <laughs> That's when you really know, understand something is when you destroy it. to just always start with one tone and I just listen to that tone until I hear what the next thing is that wants to come out of that. I never jump into just assuming that I have a patch figured out ahead of time. And so, yeah, I'll just listen and then when I hear what the next part is, then I create it and then again listen and sometimes I'll listen for 
10, 20 hours, I mean, 10, 20 minutes, hours, um, and sometimes days, and it'll just be two parts, and, and I'll be like, okay, I don't, I don't know what's supposed to happen next for days. And that's what I love about about working with modular synthesizers is that it's like, you know, where your challenge and your skill level are, are, are set apart in just a way where, um, where you feel like you're being pulled to a higher skill level because the challenge is, is just a little bit higher. That's a horrible way to explain the flow state, but you know what I mean. Um, and so, I mean, I guess I just follow what makes me feel good and that makes me feel good to be in that environment where I feel like I'm around things where my brain can't quite keep up with everything that's going on because that's what I feel when I'm in nature. You know, I can try and predict how two bird songs are going to go together but I can't really predict it. That's really comforting to me and lets my brain be at ease. I actually started a, a like a weekly therapy with myself with horses basically where you're learning to interact with horses using your breath and establishing yourself as part of their herd. Um, there's one horse in particular that I'm that I'm like working deeply with where like we're um, we're like working in a way where where I can finally ride him and it's like um, it's not using a bridle or a saddle. It's just like communicating with your breath. After the break, the other tool that changed the way we make music. At Q2 Music, we believe that to discover a new artist, to hear a new piece of music can be a transformative experience. We strive to create these experiences by sharing the music of those who make sense of our world differently, through sound. With our 24-7 music stream, connect to an international audience united by a passion for discovery. Find us online at q2music.org. I'm about to tell you is one of the most extraordinary tales of our time. It's a story of change. Hey guys, welcome back. Now for the second innovation that would change the way we make music, which came even before Morton was dreaming up the first modular synth. The arrival of tape meant even the most basic sounds could be transformed. The tape recorder. It, or something like it, had been a staple of recording studios since the early days of the 20th century. But before the 1940s, recording technology was pretty difficult to work with. It went from fragile wax discs to strips of solid steel that had to be handled with thick leather gloves. But then came thin, pliable, magnetic tape, which could be cut with a pair of scissors and taped back together. So, in the late 1940s, this French dude, Pierre Schaeffer, composer, working in a radio station, he says, well, now that I can handle this stuff, why don't I cut the tape up into little pieces, rearrange it, turn it backwards and upside down, and string it all back together to make a new piece of music? He called it musique 
Concrete music. Sound that could be literally held in the composer's hands and sculpted. Flash forward 30 years or so, DJs start doing to turntables with Schaefer did to tape recorders, and music concrete makes its way into the mainstream. Only now, it gets called sampling. Same idea, taking part of one sound recording and repurposing it as a new sound, or even as an instrument that could be played. You can take an old drum loop, cut it up, so you just have the kick drum, the snare, and the cymbals, and you could play your own drum kit. A, a dope-ass beat. All right, so it looks like we're going to need another drag mommy. Need someone to be your drag mommy. Drag mommy. Drag or mommies. Drag mommy, drag mommy. So I went to go talk to the modern-day virtuosos of sampling. And you've actually already met these guys. In fact, they introduced us to the concept of the drag mommy in the first place. You know, my drag mommy is also my husband. <laughs> it's Martin. Yeah, I forgot the original question. Sorry. <laughs> so I got back in the car and headed to Baltimore to talk to Matt. We'll arrive at 12.34 p.m. They live in a quiet block near Johns Hopkins. And as I got out of the car, I noticed that they had staked their territory on the sidewalk outside their house. Yeah, I kept putting it out there and somebody kept smoothing it over. So I was like, fuck you. I am putting this in here. Their living room is littered with books. Let's couch. Drew is also a professor of English at Hopkins. And we sat down to talk. I feel like we should be on a show called Meet the Posers because we're not really composers. We're, you know, self-taught, like autodidacts. I'm Drew Daniel. I'm Martin Schmidt. So what's Matmus? Matmus is the name for the evil slime in the sci-fi cartoon and then film Barbarella. And it's a sentient ooze that feeds on thoughts of human evil. It's also the name of our band. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. But first of all, the million dollar question. What is sampling? <laughs> I mean, sampling is a way of working with time and of capturing content, storing it, replaying it, manipulating it, transforming it, maybe betraying it. Uh, sampling is something that can show up to the listener as a distancing device, like it's reminding people that there's mediation going on. Um, you know, and I think when we hear you know, let's talk about like sampling ground zero, like something like Jingle Cats, right? Like when you hear Jingle Cats, you don't imagine that a Wait, cat wh is... what's Jingle Cats? Jingle Cats was a uh, record of cats singing Christmas songs made out of samples of meows. So Jingle Bells was meow, literally... Meow, 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 meow. When you hear Jingle Cats, you don't think a cat is singing Jingle Bells. You hear in your mind the finger on a keyboard with a sample. It's a sample that sounds like a sample. And, you know, sampling can work that way, where it foregrounds the artistry of the assemblage itself. For us, sampling is much more about a material practice of, like, objects. There's a question for us of, like, at what level do you make the work? And for us, we tend to start at the level of the album. And the album is a kind of commitment to a frame that gets you started. And then as you follow through on what that frame opens up, there's a kind of scavenger hunt of finding objects that are expressive of the concept that drives the album. Case in point, their album from 2001. A Chance to Cut is a Chance to Cure. A Chance to Cut is a Chance to Cure is an album we made uh, using only the, the uh, sounds, not from medical procedures, but we, were, we used the idea of medicine and medical procedures as the founding concept of the sounds that would come out of it. Uh, and then you imagine, like, well, what are the forms of medical technology that we could get access to? There's a song that's entirely made out of liposuction surgery. There's a song entirely made out of a laser eye surgery. Okay, well, my friend's having laser eye surgery. Let's convince her surgeon to let us record her LASIK procedure. 
and then we record that and then you work with the sounds that you get in that context. The surgeon didn't want us in the room. We were pretty disappointed by that. But he allowed us to put the recorder in the room with a microphone. And he said, why don't you put it here and pointing to this machine? So we put our DAP machine there and point the mic towards the, our friend Monica, not realizing that this was a high-powered electrical device that was driving the laser and that our recording was nothing but electrical interference. There was no sound, just this kind of horrific, weird glitch, which we had to then work with. Happily, however, our friend Monica had complications and needed to go back for a second surgery. And so when she went back for the second surgery, the guy was more used to us and said, okay, you can be there. So we got both a interference uh, festival that sounds kind of like an old Mertzbauer record, like it just sounds like a really harsh electrical interference and noise. Just, you know, like that real like bacon frying power electronics. And then we also got the dialogue because there's a weird sort of little play that they do when you're doing laser eye surgery where the patient has to describe sensations. So then the song becomes what you make out of the resources of recordings, but the recordings aren't things that you can control. And it's not as if I had an idea of like... I want to express a particular feeling about laser eye surgery or I have an idea for a structure. It's really that through a commitment to medical technology leading to the happenstance of a friend's surgery, leading to the contingency of what actually happened in the surgery, um, you get recordings. Then you listen to them with the ears of a listener and go, well, what sounds here are compelling? What do I want to hang out inside? And so I'm composing in the sense that I said, oh, I want to make a song out of laser eye surgery, but the world gave me my sounds. And then it's up to me how I want to work with it. I, I always say the watercourse way, like we find the way that's the path, not of least resistance, but like these things lead to other things which lead to other things which lead to other things. It's kind of like what Caitlin and Ty and Day were talking about when working with synths. It's like sculpture. The sound is sitting right in front of you, and you have to figure out how to mold it. And on a show called, you know, Meet the Composer, it's funny that this process is totally different from that old-school composer model, a.k.a. sitting with a pen in front of a blank piece of paper. I mean, I think the word composer has meaning in the organic context of like the conservatory and conservatory training and the transmission of certain kinds of literacies. And it is also obviously a kind of like class system uh, gatekeeper about, you know, elites and masses. You know, I, I, I kind of come at it with awe and respect for people who, who I guess really are composers but also with a sense that, you know, our skill set is different. There's this great, like, very liberating Glenn Gould quote, a composer is someone who puts things together. So that means, like, you know, a housewife making her kid lunch is composing an assemblage, like a material assemblage. She's composing lunch. Like, the molecules in water are composing a drop of water. You know, I don't think it has to have this kind of sacredness. Um. <laughs> our, our backyard neighbor is composing some trash. On... I'll go close that window. I came to making music through punk rock and hardcore. And before that, through um, making like tape music with a bunch of tape recorders. So the question of like, how does a child begin to make electronic music 
in my childhood in the 80s, that meant going to thrift stores and buying cheap tape recorders and multi-tracking by playing four tapes into a fifth tape recorder. And then for Christmas, getting a four track. And then when I had my first boyfriend, he owned a house and I used his credit to pay on a layaway plan for my first sampler, which was far more expensive than anything a college student could afford. So the economics of having the tools, I've lived through a change in terms of accessibility where now with GarageBand, now with apps on your phone, you can, if you own a phone, if you own a laptop, get going very quickly. I think with software, the problem is that the very thing that is your expressive space is also putting all kinds of parameters and contours onto what you express. And that's true for any instrument. So would I say like Ableton Live is my instrument? Yes, I would. Um, And I see the trade-offs of that, like the things it allows me to do versus the ways in which it's predilections are steering me in some directions and and away from other directions. But in our case, I mean, our instruments are things that aren't built to be instruments, right? Like we made an entire album out of a washing machine. The washing machine was not structured to be a sonic experience, but you can approach any object and say, this is my instrument. You can do that through the sheer cussedness of focus. You well, can and f- then you, but, but then you get into like good instrument or not very good instrument. Like, yes, we could make a song out of a, you know, an acrylic brick. Yes. But would it be a good, in, you know, like, like, could you do enough things in it so that you could, like a compelling instrument? No, not particularly. So this washing machine thing is actually Matmus's most recent album. It came out last year in 2016, and it's named after their actual washing machine. Ultimate Care 2 is the Whirlpool washing machine that is in our basement, and it is also the title of an album we made entirely out of that washing machine. So every one of their albums comes with its own set of rules. Some are made with objects from the same space, like with surgery or medical technology. Some are more conceptual. They made an album with sounds and objects associated with queer people who were influential to them. But this album, Ultimate Care 2, every single sound came from the Whirlpool Ultimate Care 2 washing machine in their basement. Different albums work differently. The Ultimate Care 2 was very strictly sourced only in washing machine. And so the boundaries of that... that washing machine. Yeah, one specific washing machine. So the boundary there is if the tube is draining into the sink and you record the water in the sink, is that still the washing machine or is that the sink? With it, with following any rule, you kind of... The rule shows up in where you determine the limits of the rule are... Part of trying to imagine a sonic world is working with objects and and trying to pursue them and and to pursue your sense of what what are the poetics of this piece. So your question really is like, well, how open are these rules? And it really depends on what you're doing. We make them up as we go along. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, people think that we're like making music in this way of like you tie your hand behind your back and it's so difficult. But what they don't see is that it's incredibly freeing to be restricted. It makes it much easier. We don't have to work with anything and everything. We have to work with only the things that are bound, bounded by these silly ideas. These genius uh, (laughs) concepts, these ingenious, sorry, these ingenious concepts. Oh, well, we should show you our basement, too, actually. Oh, yeah. You want to see our see studio? Please. Come on down. My new record's entirely made out of plastic. <laughs> yeah, we're working on a new album. Plastic. Boy, is there a lot of plastic stuff. In fact, once you start thinking about plastic... Styrofoam. Wow, does it pile up. Silicone. In the Pacific Ocean, particularly. Put that down, Martin. Whoa! Oh, my God. So this is our studio, and... Um, you know, there's a mixture of computers and software and hardware. Look, look what's over here. It's a washing machine because it's the basement of a house. See, that's our washing machine. That's what we made the record out of. So, 
So we're in a pretty classic basementy basement. There's clothes hanging from pipes. There's boxes scattered around. But in this case, it's also speckled with computers and wires and mixers and speakers and a modular synth. And there's one table that's just covered with what looks like a bunch of plastic junk. See, it's quiet, right? What are you doing? I'm rubbing two combs together. Take me a while to get my head around plastic. So this is a 3D printed handgun. But the ridges are nice, so you can get like a Morocco-like sound by scraping your fingernail. And could, hold on, could you describe what that is? This is a... It's hard to describe, isn't it? It's a plastic container that's shaped like a... Like, imagine a a capsule pill where the two halves fit together. But large. Except it's like, uh, what, uh, 11 inches long. And when you rotate the, the two halves of the capsule... And there's something, I think sobbing about it it's not that distant from a horn or a saxophone if you work with it in the right way you can give it the sort of pathos of the human right of the cry of something inside that's coming out um i think for us there's a sort of joy in like displacing um human voices and singing in favor of like objects that might have that same capacity to kind of sound like they're alive and like tricking the listener into feeling the liveliness of objects. What are you doing? I'm playing back a sample that I'm pretty sure is that pill. But then you can sort of stack them and make little chords and riffs like... If you heard that record. You can't get a used modular synthesizer for $160. And a modular synthesizer won't wash your clothes. It is a fairly interesting musical system if you really start to examine it in that it's got many timbres in the sheet metal that it's made of. It's got the hum of the motor. The motor changes over time. Uh, It's got nesting pieces of metal that make different pitches that are easily accessible by your hand in a standing position. These are all things you want from an instrument. Yeah, you can you can make it squeak, you can make it thump, you can make it boom, you can make it like the washing machine. That's an instrument. You know? What is a successful classical composition, the, the terms that define something that as good or bad or successful, those are different parameters than what you would apply to like a lot of the modern electronic music. Classical music's a lot more rigid, you know? It's just a, I don't, I don't know how to word it. Well, they're all wrong. We're the only <laughs> right ones. For sure. Popular versus, you know, unpopular. It's a cultural thing. I know. I think it's, a, I'm scared of this show because the show seems like it's about elite comp- 
composition and I feel like we're charlatans. And so then I'm trying to display my education to cover up my insecurity somehow about status or being real or really being an artist or something, which is weird. You'd think after 24 years, I have nothing to prove. But I think that sort of endless question of like, are you just full of shit? You know, like that question never really goes away. (laughs) For me, that question never really went away either. I was comfy working with electronics because I could geek out and explore without the pressure of ensembles and rehearsals and conductors and just focus on sound. But there was this other insecurity, this voice that was like, is this legit? You don't hear about synthesizer shows at Carnegie Hall. Electronic music does not fit within the old school model of how music is made. But it doesn't seem to fit in the model of how it's valued, either. When you bring in these new tools, which change the nature of the sound and change the creative process, does it change the art? Does it matter how the sound is made? And so finally, here we are, at the beginning of a whole new era. The start of a brand new world. And now what? How do we start? How do we begin again? So this time, I needed a mentor. (laughs) A drag mommy. Someone who had braved this new world and wasn't phased by it. I headed downtown to talk to Lori Anderson. Okay, great. Lori's studio is the top two floors of an old converted methadone clinic. And it's awesome. Oh dear. I just hit my head on a bell. Wow. There's a recording studio, a photo lab, film equipment, professional lighting equipment, rehearsal space. And when you look back at her career, this all makes wow. sense. This is beautiful. Lori has used more tools over the course of her career than almost anyone. She's been at times called a media artist, composer, singer, performance artist, violinist. She's had a hit song on the pop charts, studied sculpture with Saul Lewitt, and she's performed in every fancy venue you can think of. Meet Lori Anderson. Hello, I'm Lori Anderson, lapsed media artist and sound lover. And we were sitting by the windows in her studio, which look out over the West Side Highway and the Hudson River. So you might hear a little bit of the traffic going on. It's always a kind of a bit of a mess out there. I have never used pencil and paper in my life. I don't notate things. I give them recordings if I'm going to do anything. With instructions. Now, if I need to write something for orchestra, I'm terrible at it. I learned that very long time ago, so I never do that anymore. That's not a skill I have or or aspire to. I really, uh, I just really want to be free to, to uh, experiment with how it can sound. And and any kind of rules when I hear them about how you're supposed to do something or how it's supposed to be notated or something, I'm like, I run the other direction in a panic. I don't I want nothing to do with that kind of, you know. I get an, a new piece of something, and I, I start trying everything with it. I make a kind of big map of what it can do, and I write down all the things, and I write down all the possibilities for the kinds of music I could make from those filters and how I could turn them inside out, and that one's good for this, and that one's good for that, and that one's good for a thing where all the syllables are fractured, and that one is good for a requiem, and that one's like, they all have really individual things. It's just like practicing. But it's playing the piano. Don't make the distinction between, you know, buttons and keys. It doesn't really matter how you do it. It's the same thing. It's creating music. It's, it's the notes that are then moving through the air that matter to me. What, how, those, how those are arranged. 
a point I'm trying to stumblingly make is that um, these are all our instruments. And what, what really matters is, is, is what we make from them, you know, I think. Especially for artists. Concentration. Especially for musicians. Especially for people who make things. Empty your mind. It's a great time to make things with all your heart. Let the rest of the world. Oh, I'm um, scared of of uh, maybe the world ending or something like that. The world may end. You're right. Hold your breath. Hold your breath. But that's not a reason to be scared. Close your eyes. None of us know what will happen. Don't spend time worrying about it. Make the most beautiful thing you can. Rocks and stones. Try to... Try to do that every day. Broken That's it. You know, I mean, what are you working for, posterity? You know, it's like, we don't know if there is any posterity. What happens to karma if no one's here? What happens to the system of karma if no one is around? That's an idea that's a, something that you can make music about. And you know the reason I really love the stars? is that we cannot hurt them. We can't burn them or melt them or make them overflow. We can't flood them or blow them up or turn them out. But we are reaching for them. We are reaching for them. Do you like rubber bands? Uh, yeah, I do like rubber bands. <laughs> I do too. And um, last November, I was in a studio in Copenhagen for a week with Brian Eno. And we were not making anything. We were just playing. He said, I'm going to reach into this can because there are like thousands of rubber bands in here. And we spent the next two days making them do every kind of sound we could think of. I just heard things that I had never imagined were going on. Now, we played four hours every morning, and then we sat down and listened to that same four hours. They were so beautiful. They were so incredibly beautiful. Making them all sorts of ways, tuning them, stretching them, doing stuff with them. You know, I, I just say, um, try to figure out how you can have the best time possible. You can go get $20 ukulele and make an incredible piece of music from it. It just depends on what... It, it depends on you. It, it's not the tools you're holding. It, it is not. They're really wrong about that one. So the best thing you can do is make your radio show, make your music, um, look up at the sky, appreciate the astounding... Uh, nature of the world. Just get yourself some good rubber bands and a ukulele and, you know, have a blast.
Hi, this is Jonathan Stone from East Orange, New Jersey. Links to all the music featured on today's show are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. This episode of Meet the Composer was produced by Alex Overington, Mead Bernard, John Hanrahan, and Nadia Sirota. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Thanks to our guests, Caitlin Aurelia Smith, Tayunde Braxton, Morton Sabutnik, Drew Daniel, Martin Schmidt, and Lori Anderson. Special thanks to Hannes Brown, Paul Corley, Tim Scheel, and Ellen and Ed Bernard. And to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization, founded by composer John Duffy. Many thanks to our Season 3 Kickstarter supporters, including Arthur Ryman, Graham Parker, Eddie Kohler, David Wilson, and Porter Anderson.